When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Time to uh, welcome back our parenting commentator, Nathan McCarty wallace New Zealand's youth suicide rate is the worst in the developed world, higher now than during the Great Depression. Why are so many young people in this generation so despairing? And what can parents do to minimise the risk? Uh, Nathan is researcher, parenting commentator, and of course founder of X Factor Education. Welcome back, Nathan Morena. Morena, Catherine. It's the question, I suppose, we all have many answers to and no answer yeah. to. But where do we un- sit globally? Yeah, um, not very well. We're, we're either number one or number two. We tend to fluctuate in terms of our youth suicide rate. And, of course, it's much higher for Māori. So that means that um, when you isolate the Māori statistics, Māori have the highest suicide rate out of any race of people in the world. So it's not something that we're hugely proud of as New Zealanders. And it's a hugely complex topic. That's, you know, but uh, I suppose it needs to be talked about. Where do you start with what is, as we said, a, a first world country, but one where I think we accept there's great inequality, yep. not just financially, but just in um, life experiences, full stop. That yep. doesn't tell the whole story by any means, does it? There's, as no. you say, so many complexities. But where do you start to look at why the rate's so high? I think um, one thing to clarify right at the start is that there is no nice, clear reason. So we're having a conversation looking at lots of, like you just said, multifaceted factors that all come into it. There is no, even in the research, there's no one clear factor that stands out at the top. You know, um, Sir Peter Gluckman, when he was Chief Science Advisor to John Key, he wrote that report about um, why we have such a high rate of teenage delinquency. Now, that wasn't just suicide, but looked at why we have such negative outcomes for teenagers. And so he'd done a full examination of the research. Um, that report, um, what was it called? Um, Improving the Transition, I think it was 2011. And that looked at the research-based reasons why maybe we've got some issues. So that isolated the fact that we were punitive, um, so we didn't tend to help people, we tended to punish them, so we'd rather punish teenagers that are acting out than you know give them sort of therapeutic interventions like they might do in German and Scandinavian countries. Um, but the number one reason was because we sort of missed the opportunity to teach resilience between the ages of um, three and seven because we were too focused on literacy and numeracy. But when we look at the, my look at the research, there is one thing that stands out that parents can do. Uh, a big part of it's around sleep. So with a lack of any sort of clear patterns in the research, the one thing you can grab onto is that if the child comes from a home where the parent still regulates their sleep time, that statistically lowers the chances. That's the only nice, clear soundbite you can get from the research. The rest is just complex and multifaceted and it all needs to be sort of considered at once. And we can talk about factors, but sometimes in, in many pers- personal situations there appear to be none, and this is where you get That's into right. the complexity of understanding mm-hmm. mental illness and understanding yep. um, depression. I think as we often look for, uh, we're in our cortex, we look for a logical reason for it. So we can't understand why the person who had a good job and had a loving family and was attractive and had qualifications, um, why they would commit suicide. But 
But suicide is an emotional issue, more to be. You've got to think of it as in a limbic system way, an emotional brain rather than a logical way. There aren't a lot of logical reasons. We scramble and look for those logical reasons to try and understand it, but we might have to look a bit more in an emotional way. It is difficult also, too, for loving families who may be aware of a concern, and we're going to talk a bit more about um, you know, managing mm-hmm. the risks, aware of a concern, deeply dedicated to doing everything they can, Yep. Uh, and feel like they've done everything they possibly Absolutely. can. And that is yep. part of the absolute cruelty as well, isn't it? It is. It is. And just how unpredictable it is that, you know, you see some people that have been struggling with mental illness their whole life may have had multiple suicide attempts. But there's equally a group of people that were um, that morning seem to be planning long-term goals, may have been writing lists, you know, applying for mortgages, and then are committing suicide in the afternoon. That's completely irrational. You know, so that's what I mean. There's no pattern to it for us to be able to really clearly say this is what causes it or these are the you know, the, um, the things that lead to it. If then though we are looking at, and I'm really interested in what you just said about the, the punitive, the, the Gluckman report and the idea right. of us being a punitive society because if someone is at risk mm-hmm. um, and we're not necessarily uh, giving the best possible support options for that, is looking at that system at high school a good place to start? Talking right now, just a couple of days ago, about the moves Mm -hmm. to bring in multidisciplinary teams into high schools. One of those uh, emailers, actually, one of the emailers who responded to that interview said, what do we do with kids who are playing up? We punish them. Whereas maybe what we need to be doing is starting to look underneath at what is driving the behaviour. That's right. Maybe we need to be bold enough to teach them some emotional intelligence. I mean, that used to happen at home in the first five years of your life when society invested in having an at-home parent. But I think if that's... We've taken that away. I think we need to be teaching that maybe at schools. You know, I'm I'm aware now that we're going to be making sure every child knows how to drive a car before they leave the school, but we're not going to do anything to make sure the child's ever taught self-control while they're at school. And yet self-control is the number one research-based factor that will determine whether that child's successful or not, not whether they can drive a car. So I think maybe re-examining what we teach the children. Let's look at those two things. Let's start with Mm -hmm. self-control. How and when is that learned and how and when can you facilitate its learning? Yeah, Yeah, so self-control is largely in the frontal cortex. It's something you associate more with adults, but obviously, you know, that frontal cortex is coming online in the first sort of 26 years of your life. Um, And so self-control is usually taught by the environment. It's um, because you get a chance to practice self-control. So if I'm two and my um, parents says, right, it's snowing outside, you have to wear your green jersey, I'm not using any self-control. However, if if they say, it's snowing outside, what would you like to wear? I might choose Spider-Man togs, and then that's not appropriate because I'm going to freeze. So the parent that says to the two-year-old, right, it's snowing outside, you have to wear the green, would you like to wear the green jersey or the blue jersey? Already the child's starting to exercise agency and choice and a little bit of self-control. You know, you give them more and more self-control as they get older and can handle more. It's a difference when the teenager, say, right, you're going to your first party, um, you will only allowed to take three bottles. Um, or I say, okay, this is the first party you've been to, um, what do you think is a reasonable amount of bottles of alcohol to take? Now the child has to start using the frontal cortex, exercising um, self-control and thinking about what is an appropriate amount. All of that stuff exercises the frontal cortex using um, giving the child a sense of agency. So something that you teach right across their whole childhood. 
What are the other aspects? Interesting, you use the word twenty, uh, the, the the age twenty six is when that's fully developed, right? And uh, yeah, this is something else we're 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 learning. There's no suddenly magically you're an adult because you're sixteen or you're eighteen. No, but that's still what a lot of people think. I spend a lot of my time having to teach, you know, like sports coaches and basically a whole lot of people that work with eighteen to thirty two year olds. That if you're dealing with a boy who's not the firstborn, there's a good chance he doesn't reach biological adulthood, you know, neurologically until he's thirty two. So if you've got an, a boy who's not the firstborn and he's 18 and you're expecting him to act like he's got a frontal cortex to be all um, sorted and, you know, logical and organised, and that's unrealistic. Um, so even 26 is a wee bit fake because that's just putting everybody's results together and getting the average. This person with no gender that reaches, you know, maturity at 26. What other aspects of emotional intelligence are, mm-hmm. are you wanting to ensure that are fostered and you know um, fully yeah. developed, and how? Mm. I think it's good to stay with the research-based information. That's why I like self-control, because it's so heavily embedded in the research. Um, but uh, linked to self-control is self-regulation, so the ability to know how to self-calm. And you know, to calm the human stress response system is a fundamental skill that when you calm the stress response system and know how to re-regulate yourself, you basically calm the lower parts of your brain, which allows your higher brain, your frontal cortex, empathy, you know, all the good stuff to come online. So being able to self-regulate is a fairly fundamental skill. Most of it, again, most of us learn this um, have, through having a responsive parent in the first thousand days of our life. If, I, if you get upset, um, as a baby, and within a minute your parent has calmed you down, whether that's through feeding you because you were hungry or singing to you because you were, you know, scared, whatever, they've calmed you down, you've, um, you've been calmed down in the space of, say, 40 seconds. If that's happening regularly, that affects the biology of the child's brain. Basically, they get a brain that's got a biology that says, oh, this is, you know, 40 seconds between getting upset and calming down, because that's been the regular interval of time that their parent's taken. Um... If children, for whatever reason, get, uh, uh, later on cannot you know, um, self-regulate, cannot calm down, so they stay in their amygdala or in the lower regions of their brain and they lack empathy, they lack forethought, they lack an understanding of consequences, um, then the ability to calm that down is imperative to achieving all the things we want to achieve. Where, if at all, is this linked to this rising tide of anxiety that we are anecdotally and beyond Absolutely. seeing in yeah. uh, in this generation? I think of teens in particular and, and pre-teens. And as I said, it's not just anecdotal. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there was a survey out just very recently that was indicating it is quantified. It is. It's the fastest growing uh, you know, a mental health issue that's reported, anxiety. So what but is the link between uh, this, the yeah. self-regulation and the anxiety that we're seeing, or is it the case that our external factors are so intense and continuous now that even if you went through it the first thousand days, um, you're, you're having to right, yep. develop even higher levels of ability yeah. to cope? I think it's both of those. It's just that they compound. But I mean, you're right, they're the same thing. Anxiety is the inability to control your stress response. You know, so it is going overboard and you can't turn it off. And on the, um, so the ability to self-regulate and self-calm, um, which re- sort of requires some self-control as well, because you have to make yourself do those things that are going to help you to calm down. That's the self-control. Um, absolutely. I think if we were teaching self-control and self-calming, uh, more effectively, we would see lower rates of anxiety. 
other matters, you mentioned resilience, and it's been the word du jour for a long time. And mm-hmm. funny, you make the reference back to depression rates during the Great Depression, where obviously there was a lot of stress and pressure on families. Yep. Uh, but were we better at learning resilience in previous times? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, it's speculative, but I think we may have been. I think we had some advantages that we tend to take for granted. I mean, I, I don't know, I've said it before, but the at-home parent in the first five years, you can't really underestimate the huge amount of resilience that develops in the child and the child's brain. It's um, because it's what's happened for most of evolutionary history, where you've been nurtured in a very loving relationship in those early years. It does build the brain. It doesn't by itself create resilience, but it's a huge factor in it. So when you take that away, it doesn't mean the child's not going to be resilient. It just means you've taken away one of the big factors that helps to make them resilient. I mean, another factor was that um, many children were doing free play between the ages of um, three and six. It wasn't this idea of formal education for most of history. has not really come until seven. So you, that's that Peter Gluckman report. He talks directly of that and puts that as the number one reason, actually, that um, you know we've got so many issues with teenagers is because we're not developing that resilience in that free play context. Their own problem solving effectively in free play. Well, sometimes it's creativity too. I mean, I think we've talked about that before, Catherine, how, you know, with the creativity is the basis of problem solving. A very black and white thinker that has no creativity can only generally come up with one solution. A creative thinker can keep generating solution after solution after solution. So that doesn't just uh, apply to academic situations, that applies to resilience because it applies to emotional situations as well. Your ability to persevere and creatively generate more solutions. That ability largely comes online between two and seven in a free play environment. We're obsessed with um, structure and getting them ready for school and I think a lot of New Zealanders would think that the three-year-old would be better served by sitting at a desk and learning to write and read. They don't understand the development of the brain and that actually you're creating a whole generation of children with no resilience by doing that. Alcohol and drugs, are they the source of the problem or the symptom of a problem with people who may have uh, mental health issues, depression issues, in Mm. some instances? Yeah, I think it's that layered cake thing. It's hard to put one thing as the cause. It's that you get, once you've got sort of five factors coming together, you know, four or five factors, then it manifests. But certainly one of those factors will be alcohol and drugs on the teenage brain. And alcohol is particularly destructive in wearing away the um, frontal cortex. Um, You know, we can see that that is impacted by alcohol. And the hippocampus is the other area that's really affected, um, that literally sort of shrinks the earlier you take on alcohol as a teenager. So, yeah, and our binge drinking culture, of course, is going to compound all of that. Things like suicide and all the things that lead to that are hugely compounded by binge drinking. Trauma in itself, is it necessarily a risk factor, or is it a risk factor in the absence of some of the other things you've talked about? Yeah, trauma is definitely a risk factor. I mean, again, it would be too much of a leap because every traumatised person doesn't commit suicide. But, of course, uh, trauma is going to be uh, one of those factors. If I say we've got to build up to a cluster of four or five, then that's certainly going to be one of those things. And, again, if if it is four or five and if the intervention isn't timely and appropriate or if the um, mm-hmm. underlying coping mechanisms or resilience isn't there, it's it's a tougher road. Yeah, 
there's one thing we haven't mentioned, and I, I wonder if it's something we are going to learn more about and do need to bear in mind, which is that we don't know the role of genes in this, and particularly the epigenetics, no. the impact of your genetic mm-hmm. disposition meeting with your environment. We are still, yep. this is very much Professor Gluckman's Speculating area, right? about We're that. still yeah. learning about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very much. I mean, that is where it's all at, really, that interaction between genes and the environment. Um, so yeah, and then yeah, the genes that we bring to the party in the first place. But I suppose in some ways we have less influence over that. The things that we can influence is the environment we put those genes into, if you like. You know, I think um, I just think the average New Zealander would say to me in my daily work that oh, this generation's got it so much easier. You know, everything handed to one on a plate, they don't have to work anywhere as hard as we did. And I think that's really naive in some ways. I think this generation's got it much harder because of things like they didn't have an at-home parent. I know I keep harping on about that, but. It was a huge thing that we've taken away. So I think it's kind of cruel to say to this generation they've had it easier when they're, they are the ones that didn't have a parent at home. It's I think they've had it a whole lot harder. It's interesting that you point to sleep because, again, I, 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 mm-hmm. I never have the research at my fingertips, but it was three of the most basic things in life. I think it was um, sleep, a reliable job or sort of source of you know financial yep. income, um, and sex, actually, which is one of the most right. basic kind of needs in life. But there mm-hmm. was some research done that those three factors were sort of the, the, the driving force in the um, happiness levels or the contentment levels right. so, uh, in a survey. It's it something as basic as sleep. Is what yep. the human, but the meeting of basic needs and the confidence of the meeting of your basic needs, mm-hmm. um, be it relationships or, or, or be it good food and sleep, were yep. quite important building blocks. Mm. And the sleep one is a real biggie, especially when we are overwhelming, as I said, with the incoming stimulus. Yep. Overwhelming young minds, child development, adolescent development has not evolved just because yep. <laughs> our modern communications have evolved. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, it's um, there's just so many thoughts run through my head at the same time about well, all sleep, of that. Let's talk about the sleep thing, and yeah. you know, is it as good as anything else you're going to be able to do? And remember, you might be saying this to someone who's got a child who's yep. a total night owl or wants to sleep for two hours. You know, yeah. how, how do you approach it? Yeah, I mean, sleep's just another one of those risk factors. If you're sleep deprived, then it's another one of those risk factors where you're less likely to be in your frontal cortex because you're under stress. It's the same, we all know that. We know it for the baby. If the baby's tired, I mean, if we're tired, we, um, you know, digress a little bit, you know, go backwards. So sleep's just one of those risk factors. It works against teenagers biologically because their brain's going through changes, which means their circadian rhythm changes. So they're probably not going to want to go to sleep for two hours later than they used to. They don't have the level of melatonin in their brain until on average two hours later than before their adolescence. So that means if your kid used to be able to go to sleep at 11 o'clock at night, now they won't go to sleep until 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, Yet the world still wants them to get up at 7 and go to school. So they're kind of a little bit sleep deprived anyway and that's another risk factor. So what I was referring to at the start about the research saying if you come from a home where your parents regulate your sleep time, that's a resiliency factor. That just means if the, rather than the parents go, okay, I appreciate you're not tired, I'll go to bed and leave you playing PlayStation, he could stay up till 3 or 4 in the morning. And then he's only getting a couple of hours sleep, and then that's a really big risk factor. Whereas if we've said, oh, look, I appreciate that your brain's you know, going through changes and you might not be tired, but it's going to be more difficult for you to fall asleep, so we need to make sure the room's really blacked out, we need to make sure you have no electronic stimulation for an hour, but you're certainly not going to be able to fall asleep sitting up playing PlayStation in front of the telly. So we're still going to say by half past 11, whatever the time is, as long as it's regulated, that, sorry, you have to be in bed by that time with the lights out.
It's interesting that you earlier said, and I think we need to keep coming back to the combination of factors because That's sometimes right. poor sleep in childhood or, or, or younger may be indicative of other things, disruptive yep. um, or household or constantly being on the move or, I don't know, mm-hmm. domestic violence. Anything yep. could be a factor Sleep's in that. just easy to measure in some ways, yeah. isn't it? Because people are more honest about that. What mm. of what to do when you are worried about your young person uh, mm-hmm. and you know, as you see, trying to manage risk factors, particularly if yep. there's a sense that it's some kind of intervention is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in the, yeah, I mean, obviously ask for help. If you're that concerned that you think your child might be at risk of suicide, then absolutely ask for help. However you can find that help, whether it's ringing a youth line, whether it's just reach out and ask for help because help will come. Um, in terms of more general stuff, so you're not so much in a crisis situation where you think that's going to happen, but just for, for general parenting, um, it's about having the children feel like they're listened to. And so what I'm often teaching parents to do is that you have to reflect back a child's emotions. The majority of teenagers don't feel listened to by their parents because they express an emotion and the parent comes back with a cortical answer about what they should be doing and some logic. And so since that logical frontal cortex for a teenager is shut for renovations 90% of the time, that means 90% of their worldview comes from the emotional brain. So if parents don't speak to that emotional brain, they just skip 90% of that kid's worldview. So one of the things you can do as a parent to help relieve anxiety is to make sure that you reflect back your child's emotion before you give them any advice. So when they say, I've broken up with Billy and the world's over, I'm never going to fall in love with anyone ever again in my whole life but Billy, rather than saying, look, honey, I'm sure in two weeks' time you'll feel differently and you'll feel a whole lot better, um, she just feels like you're not getting it, you're not listening, because you didn't speak to the emotional brain. So she says, I'm never going to fall in love with anyone ever again. You reflect back that emotion, you validate it. You say, oh, honey, I know you felt stronger about Billy than anyone else you've ever been with, so you must be really upset. And that's all you have to say. And then she feels like she's listened to and understood. So then when you say, after that, honey, if you just wait another two weeks, I'm sure it won't seem as intense as it does now, she will actually take on your advice. She will listen to you because you listen to her. So parents are often giving that really good advice, but they're not validating the emotion first. And just like my nana said, you know, kids will do as you do, not as you say. So if you want them to listen to you, you've got to listen to them. And that means if you want them to feel listened to, you have to reflect back their emotion. That's 90% of their worldview. It's just so easy, isn't it, to to skip the first step and just need to constantly remind yourself that the first step makes possible the second step. A non-communicator, is that something you necessarily worrying about and I don't mean in the usual monosyllabic grunt response yeah. but in, in, in a way that feels feels like something's you know wrong well, the, the, the child's shut down and not talking to you mm. is that what you mean yeah, yeah. well it's going through the motions of communication yeah but it's actually shut down from, yeah um, I think yeah that is a concern and but in my experience 90% of the time when a child stops talking it's because they weren't being listened to when they were talking so it sort of wheels back to um, that thing we've just said they probably don't feel listened to so the best thing you can do to make that child feel listened to once they feel listened to then they might start talking but I think we're all like that if you keep saying it and no one seems to be hearing you you give up saying it so yeah I think um, they're probably expressing an emotion that might seem very illogical to the parent and not valid logically but you need to express validate that emotion. Parents get all upset about the difference between validation and agreement. They think if they validate the emotion then they're agreeing that that's, and, and it's not. Uh, you know, like um, that example I gave about daughter breaking up with Billy, um, I can validate the emotion and say, oh, you must be really upset, I know you felt more about him than anyone else, 
Um, I don't have to be thinking that underneath. I don't have to think Billy's, you know, I don't think Billy's the only person she's ever going to Billy. Yeah, I'm thinking, hallelujah, yeah, got rid of him. But hey. I can still validate the emotion. So yeah. if they don't, if they're shutting down from talking, make sure you're really showing them that you are listening. Be an active listener. And also they surprisingly might be listening when you don't realise it. They just might not yeah. be responding. It's a That's long right. game, isn't it? Communication. It's rolling their eyes at communication. you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but always. actually, some of it's going in. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Nathan McCarty-Wallace, founder of X Factor Education. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 